Hello. Thanks for listening to my podcast. My name is Peter. I live in Minneapolis. And I named my podcast Minneapolis Pete. Super descriptive, I know. Um, so thanks for listening. This episode, I have titled it uh, part of my Conversations with People series. And uh, this conversation is with my uh, friend, Treden. Um, he's a local Minneapolis artist. He does a lot of portrait type stuff. Um, and he knows a lot about art theory and, and just interesting dude who knows uh, uh, way more about art than I do. Um, uh, but so that, that conversation is coming up. But I should say that um, I don't think I will ever use the Anchor app to um, record a conversation again because... Um, the microphones that I got for my phone just didn't do the trick. Um, and my phone itself is kind of slowly dying. Um, so, uh, Treden, man, I did my best with this audio, but, um, it's not fantastic. And, um, I feel bad because it, it is no fault of Treden's that the audio is bad. It's all mine. So... I know for the future that if I'm going to record an interview with somebody, I should not use um, this app. I know that. Uh, yeah. So, I uh, the I think it's still a great recording, but just be aware there there's some audio issues. Um, I think you can still get a lot out of it if you're interested in hearing about um, Treden and his art and art theory and stuff. I think we had a, a pretty good conversation. So that is going to uh, happen right now. Thanks. Okay, so in the first part of the art talk, I think we left off. You had just finished that, um, what would you call it, uh, apprenticeship with the guy in Italy? Yeah, and... Um... That's, yeah, that's a good way to talk about it. And then we, then I talked a little bit about that job that I had after art school of, um, where he's doing production painting and kind of the, what those experiences, how those experiences informed like my future art making. It was kind of, art school itself was um, formative as you would expect it to be. and in a lot of ways, and some of them actually had something to do with art making. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, um, but then uh, the apprenticeship in, in Italy was another one, and then working as a production painter you know, in, in my first kind of real job, making art for a living, basically. Like those, those things taught me stuff about what I wanted to do, what I didn't want to do, and then also like the the manual skills, the you know, the hands-on time of trying different things, and the and my after Italy, or going back to art school, and um, uh, that that 
experience was between my first year and my second year. And in the school where I went, the second year, you declared your major. Mm. The first semester after I got back, like I explored the sculpture department and realized that like I wasn't going to be able to make the kind of sculpture I wanted to make. And so... What kind of sculpture did you want to make? I wanted to do figurative, mm. fairly realistic um, sculpture in, in fairly traditional materials, you know, stone and clay and bronze. And, um, and what people were doing was um, very additive. Um, they were uh, welding things to other things taking found objects and assembling them together to make this kind of kind of the work that the professors made was kind of like that and, and, and also the work that a lot of the students made was like that and it just wasn't what I responded to like as a grown up like looking backwards at it I'm sure I could have gone into that department and found a way to do the things I was interested in doing and found somebody who could support my interest in that, um, but I didn't pursue that. Um, I think if there had been a stone carver or um, somebody who was doing figurative work, I probably would have felt more comfortable, like going pursuing the sculpture. Um, but so then my thought was, well, I'll just focus on two dimensional, like like having all these different skills is good. That's what I'm interested in: drawing, painting sculpture, all that stuff. I don't want to have just one thing, so I'll go into painting, went into painting. I think I talked about this last time. Mm -hmm. And um, I think built up those, those two-dimensional skills. And I still really haven't returned to sculpture. And I think there's going to be a time when I do. Um, mm -hmm. um, but I um, have mostly been doing some kind of painting or drawing, or some combination of that. Um, when I um, left, I left that job in Kansas City, the job that I had where it was a, uh, was a production painter and then working gift wares with the same company. Um, like I left that job, moved to Minnesota, to Minneapolis, and um, I didn't really pursue artwork other than, say, trying to sell drawings as illustrations for local publications. Um, and uh, I did do illustrations and designs kind of pro bono for um, a couple of, um, a couple of places. Like I did the, the annual report for the Basilica of St. Mary mm -hmm. one year. So I did all these kind of Renaissance-style drawings based on the sculptures around the church. Um, and, um, but it, so I did the drawings, and I also did the layout of the actual final document. Mm -hmm. And um, with the hopes that that would give me exposure and people would want to hire me to do other things, didn't, that didn't happen. <laughs> yeah. Are, uh, let me see if I can form this. It's either a question or a statement, and I'm, I don't know which which it is yet. It seems like. It seems like, the arts, 
um, you have to go through this process of like when you're in training you know for like you're saying for sculpture you get trained on all these like classical forms and like here's how you make a bust of a thing and here's like hot, you're being trained on these high art things right and then when you are done with that you have you have to find work right so it's like it's like you climb up this hill of <laughs> of like uh high ideas and then you plummet right after and have to do something that's not exactly what what you studied or are crazy about right right yeah and it seems you might get lucky and the thing that you're very passionate about making at the end of your training is has a market and Mm -hmm. um i know people that have basically been making a version of the same painting for their entire careers Mm -hmm. and they're doing pretty well And there's and there's nothing wrong with that. Like right. you know, like there are enough people in the world that like that thing. You know, I'm not trying to be dismissive, but mm-hmm. I just haven't for me, I haven't found what that thing is. Yeah. You know, like um and like being interested in figurative work and um so like it's recognizably people you know, specific places um, may not necessarily be photorealistic, but it's real realistic in its depiction of people and places. And there's a certain amount of narrative content that I'm interested. In. Like you know, you could surmise a story from looking at the image. Um, so for like, that's my goal someday is that I will make a painting that maybe I have. Uh, a narrative in mind when I create it, but other people can look at it and find their own story in it. And um, that's kind of what I'm searching for right now is this story that I want to tell. Like I feel like I've been spending all my time as an artist developing skills for that, that day when the story that I need, that only I can tell, that I need to tell, you know, can be told. Mm-hmm. And, and in the meantime, I've been trying to build skills and find, create a market for the things that I'm interested in doing. But I'm not particularly interested in making the same painting over and over again because I know someone will buy it. And it's not... Um, I think if I found that painting that excited me and that I wanted to paint it a hundred times, I would. Mm-hmm. But I um, haven't been involved. Like at one point, I, I was involved in the St. Paul Art Call, and I was on the the um, steering committee or the board of directors for the. Um, volunteer organization at the time so there was a, a group of us that made all the decisions about how to run that business and so I was the secretary for the the um, the St. Paul Art Collective and, um, and so making decisions about how we market the experience of visiting an artist's studio with the idea of 
like it's something to do on a weekend, but it's also like the other thing you can do is bring your checkbook and buy something. And after having done that for a couple of years, I realized that that um, that lots of people came in to kind of see what it was like. You know, like like some people came because they're interested in what a live work studio was like, and people spent a lot of time looking at my records and my CDs and my books and not as much time looking at the art that I had on display. And the only stuff I ever sold were things that, like, I, I put a bunch of old exercises from art school in a box and said, you know, $20 or more, make me an offer kind of thing. And I sold stuff out of that box. but. I didn't find new clients for commission work. I didn't sell any of the larger paintings I had made. Um, I didn't, that, I mean, I think over time, I generated interest in my work and I generated a name, like people in the art circles knew who I was. And I did eventually like get commissions from strangers who, found me through word of mouth, you know, and so those people found out about me somewhere. You know, maybe it was my website, maybe it was because I participated in the art call or because they were a friend of a friend of a friend or something like that, but, um, but there's, because I, I didn't have to rely on that income to pay my rent or to pay my college loans or any of those things, like I didn't pursue marketing my work in the way that would generate a lot of income. Mm -hmm. So when I had the art call, art, art call twice a year and could show my work and um, maybe sell something or maybe generate some interest um, and I would get some commissions and I've had two or three commissions every year and I've sold paintings every year and but I'm not in a place where, you know, like I could reduce my hours for my daytime job so that I could paint more. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, the, that part of it, like I, I, uh, I always wonder like, what if I had, after art school, like been really risky and just like moved away from the town where I went to art school because, you know, I'm competing with all the other people who just graduated, you know, trying to find work or uh, trying to sell art in the galleries. And um, I moved to a different market and set myself up with a studio and just made a lot of work and went into debt or whatever I needed to do to, to do that. Like, what, what could have happened if I had done that? But I was just so anxious about paying back my student loans and um, that it felt like, you know, like after, like once the grace period ended and they started sending me bills, like I, like I need a job, <laughs> you know, so yeah. I, I found one and that was that, you know, that job out of school doing their production painting stuff and um, so since then I've had some type of you know, nine to five job. And the artwork happened after that. Mm -hmm. And when we moved to Minneapolis, I had my drawing table in the dining room, and, you know, the eating area of the kitchen. And when 
we needed to eat, we just lay it flat, and it was the dining room table, and when I needed to draw, I propped it not, and, um, and off and on I had, you know, like, I had space in my apartment where, for art making, or I actually had a, a studio that I shared with somebody else, I could afford the rent of it, um, as I got better paying day jobs, I could afford to rent studio space. And um, and then eventually lived in a live workplace in Lower Town, St. Paul, and um, and so it's been that kind of that process of um, you know would I be more productive if my paints were right there you know in the next room or would it be more productive if I left and there was no other distractions like TV and computers and, um, you know, sitting outside in the sun. <laughs> yeah. Places, you know, and so, um, do, does the aspect of like, do, does the aspect of purity of where the, um, the reason to make the art it factor into it at all and what I mean is like if you if your entire thing is you're making art for for the purpose of other people to buy it um, do you think that lessens like your artistic um, expression because then it's potentially not your um, not just this thing that you're trying to get out into the world but it's like oh I know people like eat pray love with with flowers, like I gotta, I gotta make something, you know. Does it, does that um, sort of equation ever factor in, you know, to it, you? It it does. Mm -hmm. So I really looked at the work that I've done as like I'm exploring the materials, I'm building technical skills, and and trying to build a portfolio of work that demonstrate the things that I can do in, in the hopes that I can get paying customers who have the story they want me to tell, right? You know, so like, they would paint it themselves if they could. Mm -hmm. And so since they can't, then they hire me to do it. Mm -hmm. And so in that situation, like, I'm okay with telling someone else's story. Mm -hmm. um, and letting them kind of drive what the end result is. And again, like I feel like if I had, in all that time, I haven't really established the, like what is my art. Like I have a style. There's a way I put down marks and put down paint. And, and I think if you look at enough of my work, you can see that there's something, there's a signature in the art making part of it. But there isn't, you know, like I know, I know people who are fascinated by things. Like, be like, for you, like, you have your work life, you have your roller derby life. Mm -hmm. Like, if you started making paintings, you could make paintings about roller derby. Mm -hmm. And it wouldn't necessarily be because there's a market for roller derby paintings is because it's it's something you're passionate about it's an important part of your life and you're driven to make images about it and share those images with people 
And so mm-hmm. for me, like there, I haven't found that thing, right? That mm-hmm. drives me to make images of a certain theme, you know? Mm-hmm. And so um, I focused on studio portraiture for a long time. Yeah. And um, the idea that, that there, it, it's a genre of painting, you know? So if you go through art history books, you can find people who, like, it's, it's not necessarily narrative. Like, there, it's not an allegory, it's not mythological, it's not religious, it's a person sitting for an artist. And it's meant to depict a likeness, and, um, and the environment that that person is sitting in is the artist's studio. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so I've been interested in making that kind of work, and, and, and thinking about packaging that work as a, as a suite of work by having people sit in the same red velvet chair. Oh, yeah. And so, um, so, you know, like, so I have, I don't know, maybe 10 paintings I've made um, or the last, you know, maybe 10 years where people are sitting in this red chair and, and they're, you know, either looking at me or they're looking off in the distance, but it's a portrait you know, a likeness of them at that moment. And, um, and so that's kind of the closest I've come to kind of having a thing, mm-hmm. you know, that is my, uh, you know, it's not really like factory, art factory work, you yeah. know, like, yeah. but, um, but making those red chair paintings. And my original idea was like, at some point I could fill a room with people sitting in the red chair. That would be really cool. And it would be interesting to look at that like over time and um, some of them are more loosely painted, some of them are tighter. Mm-hmm. Um, How long do people sit when you do those? So the, 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 the longest anybody sat would be about four hours altogether. Mm-hmm. And then I take a photograph and then I finish it with a photograph. Yeah. Um, it's... Typically, there's not a lot of, um, like, scheduling the time, like, where I have time to be in the studio and someone has time to come sit is difficult. Mm-hmm. And it needs to be at roughly the same time of day, so the quality of light is the same. And the, um, or, you know, or do it at night when I can control the lighting. Mm-hmm. Um, so typically, probably more often than not, someone sits for an hour hour and a half and the initial drawing and maybe a little bit of the painting is done from life and then I take photographs and then I work the rest of the painting from the photograph yeah and um the that that little bit of time where the painting is made from life gives like you can feel it in the final product like it's so, at least for me, when I'm working exclusively from a photograph, it, there's, a, um, there's a little bit of vitality is missing. Um, like there's uh, the more beholden to the photographic image. And 
so when I work from life, there might be little things that are slightly off proportions or you know, somebody's ears are too big or their nose is longer than it is, but it still looks like them, but there's something that's slightly different that makes, that adds some tension, that adds some interest, and, um, and that there have been times when I've worked directly from a photograph where it, you know, like I'm, what a painting is a photograph and not mm -hmm. people sitting in a chair or... Do you know how long uh, before there were photographs, how long people sat for portraits? Um, well, so it, as long as it took to paint the painting. Yeah. And so um, it, could, it, could be, it could be anywhere from, you know, a few hours to a hundred hours. Um, yeah. But there are, there are always, um, not always, but there were methods where you could um, limit the amount of time that the human being had to sit mm -hmm. because maybe they're an important person and they have a limited amount of time to sit. Or um, so you could, um, there were artists in history who would um, maybe have a mannequin and they would pose the outfit on the mannequin and mm -hmm. paint the pose like everything that's not skin could be painted in advance and then when the sitter comes in then you paint the face and the hands mm -hmm. and so then there's a shorter amount of time that somebody actually has to sit there um, and uh, there were also times when the, the artist would have a model stand in for the person the only thing that would be painted from life would be the face mm -hmm. So the artist would come to the sitting with most of the painting painted already, and then you just put the face in. Yeah. Um, and um, and some of those paintings, like when you see them in uh, art museums, especially when there's groups of them next to each other, you can tell that that's what they did. Yeah. And there were, like in early American art, there were portrait painters that... You know, they, that was their stock and trade, and like the only way they could make a living at it would be able to turn these paintings around fast. And so um, they would have, you know, like paintings that were mostly painted, mm -hmm. and they would just put in little details that made them appropriate to that particular sitter. So like the face, the hair, the hands, maybe some part of the background that yeah. makes it feel like it's tied into where that person lives. So, there's a formula to it. Yeah. And, um, that, uh, what you just said, um, it, this might come across as a guy who doesn't know a thing about, <laughs> about that medium going to like, saying to like a filmmaker, hey, it'd be cool if you did this, you know? So I apologize in advance if that's what I'm doing. But what you just said, like you, you, it sounds like it might be cool to combine those two ideas for your like red chair thing. Like it, I, I like deconstructed art and like modern art stuff, you know? So people are going along and seeing like portrait, 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 and then just the red chair and then like just the background. And then like this other painting is just somebody's face, you know, <laughs> but it's, I don't know. In my head, I think like that 
that can be really um, disturbing and cool. Yeah. Especially if it's. I have painted the empty chair all by itself. Yeah, yeah. Um, it it would be neat to see like, if say you were doing a portrait of somebody, you know, here's a, like this one canvas has their face, this one canvas has their hands, mm. you know, so the the audience has to go from painting to painting and sort of try and amalgamate these things together. Mm-hmm. But I'm, I, uh, again, sorry, that's like, you know what would be cool <laughs> is if you played this song. Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I struggle with that same thing, that what you were saying about that, um, trying to find voice. I don't, I, I draw a little bit, but primarily I've been trying to write ever since I got my journalism stuff and just can't like start to write things and I'm just not not interested in writing things that would sell I guess mm-hmm. and it seems like the things that do sell I have no interest in putting myself through that you know yeah I, I wrote a little bit for a newspaper and just the things I had to write was no interest whatsoever yeah, I, it's it's fascinating to me like what people want, mm-hmm. you know. And so, uh, one of the first commissions that I ever received for large oil painting was a um, it was a portrait of the man's children. Like he wanted to commission these portraits, and he wanted them in a kind of depicted in kind of a 19th century style. Mm. So um, so kind of like what I was just talking about, the kind of itinerant portrait painters who would have kind of a formula. And so like it would be kind of the child standing in the middle ground and there would be some kind of icon, icon in the foreground, mm-hmm. toy or... And then the background would have some, some physical space that's tied to... The person depicted, and so there was criteria. So we wanted, um, we wanted the um, there's a son and a daughter. We wanted the son to be in a sailor suit, and the daughter um, in a specific color dress, and um, and he wanted they had. Um, a piece of land, and on that land there was a cave, and they had a story that they had made up that there was um, a bobcat that lived in the cave, and there was a leprechaun that rode around on the bobcat like it was a horse. Whoa! And so they want he wanted the cave and the bobcat and the leprechaun. And the kids in these kind of ye olde timey outfits. That is very odd. And so, and he <laughs> is it? Is it? No. Well, but to me, these are the kinds of things I've ended up with. Yeah, yeah. You know, some, Sorry. Yeah. Some portraits are very straightforward. Yeah. You know, me and my child, or um, but sometimes they're like like these very complicated things. Which are really fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. So sure. That's true. The idea. That these two paintings would be the same size, and they would hang on either side of the fireplace, in in a fireplace mantle in their house, and he wanted them to 
the backgrounds to visually tie together. Mm -hmm. So I designed them so that it was a continuous background across the both images. So when they hung them at the same level, the horizon lines would line up and, um, and it would be a continuation of like the forested background with the cave. And, mm -hmm. um, so, uh, so that was like the, like the very first, like I think I was still in art school when I got that commission. Wow. And, um, how biz the, the, yeah, that's it, it. It's bizarre, but as you said, like in an interesting way. Yeah, it, it raises a lot of questions for me. And I wonder, like, I wonder if those paintings are still hanging on the wall, and you know. Yeah. I have this kind of um, weird. Uh, it's not really a fantasy, but kind of a daydream of like I'll go into a um, like a goodwill. And someday, and one of my paintings will be in the pile of paintings. It'll be in there. You know, like, <laughs> that's, I think that's how I'll know when I've made it. Written <laughs> that like that. I don't know if that's really what I want, but it'd be funny if it happened. Um, but comic books factor into this at some point, right? Well, yeah. I mean, I, I did explore that at one point like I've always been interested in comic books and uh, like sequential art mm -hmm. and um, as a, you know as a consumer and as a, someone who appreciated that kind of storytelling and it was fascinated by the idea of making comic books or graphic novels and um, the um, I had a friend when I was still in art school who was working for DC Comics as a as a comic book illustrator, and in comic books, there's um, like you may know. I mean, you probably know this. And listeners might also know this, but the the there are different roles in making a comic book. There's somebody typically there's somebody who writes the story, and then somebody who draws the initial drawings in pencil and then somebody who inks in those drawings and the inked part can look very different from the pencil part sometimes and sometimes the point of it is that they look exactly like the pencil part and um and so my only experience with with a comic book that was actually like published was i inked a comic that my friend drew he did the pencils, I did the inks, and um, yes, and, and so he's he was uh, he was African American, and, um, and the comic book was uh, an African American superhero, um, and the idea um, I learned this later. The idea of the comic book company was to have um, comic books about African-Americans made by African-Americans. Uh -huh. yeah. And so the, um, the publisher did not know that I was an African-American. That was at least my understanding, was that I probably could have done other issues if um, he didn't know. Uh, yeah. Um, 
but it's fun. Yeah. You know, but it's it's kind of like tracing, like like you know, you mm-hmm. have somebody else's line, and you have to make the exact same line, and um, and then then that inked work then gets colored if it's going to be a colored comic book, and so then there's another person, there's another person job is to color that drawing, and so so, um, so I've I have taught myself how to color comic books using. Photoshop, mm-hmm. and um, and also had to to do the inking part and to, just to draw straight digitally. So there have been times when I've been really fascinated by the idea of like getting the computer set up. I would need to do digital art that way and mm-hmm. um, and explore visually. visually. It seems like it's getting a little bit easier to like the new iPad Pro. I hear a lot of like web comics use web comic artists use. Uh, I guess Manga Studio. Yeah, something like that. One of the programs that's specific for and part of it is it's the input device. Like, how do you get your line into the computer? And the um, there's a lot of strength in having. The drawing be vector graphics, so you can resize, reuse. Oh right, um, yeah. And uh, and so the the issue with like using a program like Illustrator is that it's 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 not just straight drawing. Like you can't go into Illustrator and then just draw. There's a very specific way you create arcs and curves and. Um, and people can do it. Like once they've got the right amount of training, it's it's it, it can be as smooth as I've not been able to get the hang of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can see the advantage of it, and um, I imagine that there are probably programs now, like maybe Mega Studio can do this, where you can just you can draw a vector path straight in, and it looks much the same way it would look if you were drawing it on a piece of paper. Mm-hmm. So uh, I see the advantages of being able to like control the, the, the stroke, that's how the path that you're making by drawing on, in the computer is the, the dark line is um, made around it. Um, and then that you could like draw a face and then you could shrink it down flip it and you know it's like so it's there's the potential to like make it the process faster because you could reuse backgrounds or um which is harder if you're just frame of a comic book individually mm-hmm. and then um using the layers of a program like photoshop to build up colors behind that black line mm-hmm. um it's 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 actually kind of like printmaking, like screen printing or block printing. It's really fascinating work, and I, I like doing that. Mm-hmm. Who is um, who is your or who or what is your favorite comic book artist slash comic book right now? My um, my favorite comic book artist is Mike Mignola. Um, that was kind of a softball. I knew the answer yeah. just because I love <laughs> Mike Bignall. Also, the um, like he's not 
right now he's not actually making comic books. He's writing stories that other people are drawing, but he's doing he's making paintings that are based on his. Comic oh, is he? Work. Yeah. He, that, his he's art is watercolors and um, ink drawings and um, and they they have some of the same kind of themes. They're kind of dark. And, yeah, I I looked for large like poster size images of some of his stuff because I love it so much. And I've gone to his website and seen if he sells anything like that. And yeah. he does. I, not that I, the last time I looked, he didn't. Yeah, you have to. His his wife has a um, eBay. Oh, okay. Account and they sell a lot of stuff through eBay. Yeah. Um, so there's stuff on there right now. Oh, okay. If you follow follow him on Facebook. He, that's when he posts that the new stuff goes up for sale. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. But it's just there's something that I respond to with that, like the way he uses, like there's a lot of black in his drawings. Yeah. And um, and Dave Stewart is the colorist who usually works on his comics, and he has a very specific way of handling color and gradations and he did um he did that comic we were just talking about before we started recording black hammer right yeah he's I, that's where i've seen his name before yeah. okay he does a lot of work for dark horse comics yeah um, but uh yeah he's just like just something about the way like there's there's minimal use of gradation mm-hmm. and so it's kind of Back in the day, all comics had flat colors because of the way they were made. And, um, like, way back before computers were involved in the process, a person, like, designed the color, and then someone actually cut out a template for each color on the page. Oh, really? And, um, And then that person had to know how four color processing worked. Like how a certain amount of yellow and a certain amount of blue mix together to make green. And so then, so something that was green was on the yellow plate and on the blue plate. Oh, interesting. And and then they used the little dots to determine how much blue and how much yellow. And so every, a colorist back then was actually doing manual four color separations. So there was a black a black one that they did. There was a yellow one, blue one. Wow. I didn't... I, somehow I didn't know that. I've been reading comics my whole life and I did not know that. And then the white was the white of the paper. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, so that... It was just... That to me is just like fascinating. So where like the color is... So when, when computers started being used, then... A very similar process is used for how to block out the colors, and then um, and then how you um, once you've blocked out the the large color shapes behind the line drawing, then you can add the special effects or the, mm-hmm. uh, the gradations or the details that are now really easy to do in a computer, but people used to hand paint them. Um, and it all depends on like how it's going to be reproduced. If it's reproduced using kind of a photographic process, then you can watercolor. And there are some great comic books that were 
every panel is its own little watercolor painting. Mm-hmm. Um, but there, there are also some that were airbrush paintings or multimedia, different, you know, pencil and pens and acrylics and airbrush. And, um, but most, most of them are done on the computer now. Yeah. And part of, I mean, part of it is just, it's got to be faster. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, you don't want to wait three months in between. Yeah. Right. I think that would be a fascinating job. Like, yeah. But, like, the... You'd have to be... I, th- I think you'd have to be really prolific. Like, you'd have to be able to turn stuff around really fast. Mm-hmm. It is... This is good radio. This is one... It's 145. Okay. You I gotta have, go. I do have to go. So, I, we, we could talk for four more episodes. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was good. I don't know if people want to listen to that, but... Well, uh, some, somebody would. Yeah. Cool. Thanks, man. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks. Can stop it.